what do you think you you would do if you'd actually had to do it for real? If it was the real thing, what would you have done? This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to Cold War Conversations episode 30, which is a fascinating visit I made to the Rushton Spencer Royal Observer Corps Nuclear Monitoring Post in Staffordshire in the UK. The equipment used in today's episode has kindly been provided by our supporters who make monthly donations via Patreon, and I'd like to say a special thanks to all of them. If you would like to support the podcast further and get access to some exclusive extras, then go to our website at coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. Now back to today's episode. My instructions were to meet in the Royal Oak pub car park where I would be escorted to the post. Right on 11am, David appeared and guided me up various little used country lanes up into the hills above Rushton Spencer. And then we turned onto a rutted track. This went up further until a small, well-kept compound appeared over the ridge. Welcome to Rushton Spencer Royal Observer Corps Post. I'm here today with uh, David at the Rushton Spencer Royal Observer Corps post. Now, I've been wanting to visit one of these posts for quite some time. It is a lovely sunny morning in uh, Staffordshire today. When were you uh, signed up to the Royal Observer Corps? Myself, I joined in uh, as late as 1982. Uh, only managed nine years because we were stood down in 91. And basically it was through a colleague of mine who was a member and he just came along one night and said, do you fancy doing something different? And did you know about the Royal Observer Corps before then or, or not? Not really, no. It was, um, should we say, unknown. That's probably the best way of putting it. Um, although it wasn't secretive, it wasn't widely advertised as such. Yeah, and what was your job at the time? Were you working? I was working. Um, for my sins, I was a TV engineer. Oh, OK. So you you were the uh, comms and technical expert in the post, were you? Well, unfortunately, we weren't allowed to do much. Everything was supplied for us. Uh, but obviously, if there were any issues, then I was always the first port of call, yeah. So we've just entered the uh, compound of the post. When was this actually built, this underground post that I can see in front of me? Right, well, the date on this particular post is somewhat unknown. The majority of the posts were built between 58 and 65. The nearest we can get is early 60s. There are murmurings that it was 63, but it's unconfirmed. What I can see here, and I will be putting photos on the uh, website, is a sort of raised grass mound with a couple of structures on top. One looks like the uh, entry structure, 
and the other one appears to be uh, ventilation. But I'm sure Dave will go into more detail shortly on that. So uh, let's proceed. We're now looking at the entrance uh, to to the post. Dave is uh, getting out a chunk of keys here to open a substantial padlock to uh, open the hatch. Is this sort of similar to what would have been on the post at the time? In most cases, yes. Um, the post hatches did tend to evolve over time. The basic hatch was the square structure that you see with the two padlocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, some posts, unfortunately, were prone to degrees of vandalism, and as such, they had the added extra security bar. Right. Uh, this wasn't standard on our post. Uh, we acquired it, so we fitted it. Now, interestingly, Dave told me earlier that we're... <laughs> We've uh, not come particularly well equipped today with uh, torches, so uh, be assures me that once my eyes get used to the gloom, I will be fine. <laughs> so we're just opening the uh, hatch now, and uh, I'm going to. Not scared of heights, are you? No, <laughs> that's not a height, really. <laughs> right. Ladders tend to uh, put some people off. What I usually recommend for most folk is approach from this side yeah if you feel happier put your hand on there yeah step up on there and then down step down and then you can grab there okay hold of this with one hand yeah obviously yeah yeah then work your way down once you feel comfortable then transfer onto the ladder right okay Um, when i'm down i will shout clear and you're then free to proceed down great Okay, down. We're in the post now. Um, it's safe to say the uh, the atmosphere is um, is musty. Is this the same sort of uh, atmosphere that you you'd uh, expect on here when it was manned, Dave? Uh, yes, but it does tend to get better once you've uh, been at it for a while. I mean, obviously, as it stands at the moment, it's now um, September, so it does tend to be a bit um, cool and unfortunately any condensation that occurs whilst the post is manned is not so easily dispersed but during the summer times it's quite quite good especially when you've got the place open and uh, you get a nice warm breeze blowing through yeah yeah but i guess when when it's sealed up it's a relatively constant temperature down here it is indeed it doesn't tend to alter much middle of the winter when it's unmanned then it can be a bit cool when you first come in but once there's two or three of you in here for a a short while it's quite cozy he's being polite there so in in the post itself there is a uh double decker bunk here and so it's a crew of three in here wasn't it dave yes there were three on duty um originally there would have been three bunks but unfortunately in their wisdom um management decided that you couldn't have three people asleep at the same time so they took one bunk away and rather than have two separate bunks we decided to jack them up and turn them into bunk beds plural so that we could actually sit underneath them whilst we were having meetings and use the top for storage yes it's probably made it a load more spacious in here and uh, there's some royal observer corps uniform on the uh, the end of the bunk in a very dashing air force blue with observer corps on the shoulder and 16 now 16 is the group that you were in 
good act. It was Shrewsbury 16 Group that was uh, our parent company. And what's that next to it, David? Right, well, we managed to acquire an NBC suit, a nuclear, biological and chemical suit. Um, not standard issue, but uh, it is a very basic form of protection, which was uh, available to forces. So you're saying it wasn't available to the Royal Observer Corps, even though you were obviously going to be stepping out into a uh, post-nuclear environment? Not as such, no. Um, Whether they were going to stockpile them at group headquarters for us to pick up with the rest of the equipment when we were put on stand to, we don't know. There's a lot of things that we uh, weren't always privy to. So what protection was given to the uh, the person who had to go out and change the photographic paper and, and bring that down? He had a nice little cape which he could wear just to uh, protect him from any fallout or inclement weather, which uh, was used once he descended the shaft and passed the GZI papers through to the monitoring post room. He would then have to sluice himself down using uh, water which we kept in the post and which was uh, then pumped out using the pump and grid system that's at the bottom of the shaft. Right. So the other side of the post from the um, bunks, there is a desk and some cupboards here. I can see the uh, blast indicator, I'm presuming. You can see I've done my research here. It's not just thrown together this uh, podcast. Can you just take me through what that does? Right, well, basically, it is, as you say, it is an indicator of the uh, power of the blast from the bomb. Uh, top side, there would be a pair of baffle plates, which basically allowed the peak overpressure from the blast of the bomb to be transferred down to the instrument. And if the instrument decided to read anything more than 0.1, then you uh, went up and changed the GZI papers and sounded the attack warning. How did you sound the attack warning? Uh, basically, poor old number three again would have the siren. Oh, so that's a, there's a hand crank siren in there. Wow. Yep. He would take the hand crank siren up top and uh, sound the uh, rising and falling tone to announce uh, an impending attack. That looks like quite a heavy instrument. That must have been quite an effort getting that up the shaft. Yep, but everything has to go up and down. <laughs> and what's in this other crate here right well the uh, the slightly brown crate that is a um, fallout maroon now when you get fallout uh, as frankie says you get three blasts on a gong three blasts of a whistle or three loud bangs and this particular device gives three loud bangs so is this the sort of thing that would like launch a rocket that would then emit three loud bangs? Is that is that how it works? I've sort of seen photos of them. Right. Basically, yes. It's actually uh, a three-stage mortar. Um, it sends off one, then another, then another in sequence. And uh, David is just showing That's me... A dummy. That's a dead one. A, <laughs> thankfully, a dummy one. And uh, it's just like three aluminium tubes that... Presumably you load a cartridge in there of some kind? Preloaded. Preloaded. You just connect two wires to that. Yep. You just connect two wires to the base, which are lowered down into the control room. Number one would have the firing box, 
And once it's set up and number three was clear, then obviously you would fire it. Okay. And with Russian Spencer being rural, you were the warning for the local population that an attack was was coming in. So you you were going to tell them that there was four minutes or so. Yeah, if that's what we got, yeah. Um, we were the only... Well, I won't say we were the only, because obviously a lot of uh, local police stations, uh, community shops, county libraries and the such had um, warning carrier points, which, again, would dawn the local populace. But in rural, rural areas like here, then we would be basically there for the farmers and the such like around. Right. And how would you have received the attack warning? Yeah, well, we have a device called the carryover receiver, which would normally be in its on position. And under normal circumstances, uh, thankfully, the later version, which this is, was quiet. If we wanted to make sure it was working, we would press the test button and you would get a beep, beep, beep noise. Um, all the while it was quiet, we were lucky we could sit down, eat our sandwiches, drink our tea and uh, the world was at peace. So did you have that on in the background, just a, a very quiet level? Or did, did you just, if, if you were in a state of alert, then you would have it turned on or turned up? Yeah, once the post was manned, then it would actually be turned on. But as I say, this is the later version, and it is silent unless you press the test button. Okay. The previous version did used to actually sit there and beep at you all the time, which... Right. You kept the volume down because yeah. it got a bit taxing. I can imagine. I can imagine. Three of you in here with that going. It's a bit like a dripping tap. And then when the warning comes through, what changes to that tone? Uh, basically, you get a like a warbling tone and then you get a spoken message. A, v- a verbal message. And what would that verbal message say? Attack warning red. Attack warning red. Attack warning red. And... Did you have to acknowledge that you'd received that in any way? Uh, we would acknowledge that via our post-teletalk to group headquarters. Okay, and what Dave is showing me here is a uh, lovely British telecom, old British telecom logo on it as well, um, which is a strange-looking sort of like speakerphone contraption is probably the only way I can describe it. And again, I'll add some photos um, to the uh, the website of that so you you acknowledge that and then you get the siren out or would you i presume in a period of alert you would already have the siren upstairs and ready to go (laughs) rather than lose at least three of the four minutes uh trying to get it up the shaft yeah along with the uh pe set the generator uh things like that would already be up there and ready because you would probably have been um charging about the post battery anyway so that would be upstairs and uh, the siren, obviously, you get up there and when you're manned up, yeah. just so that it's ready for use as, when, and if needed. Yeah. Okay. And um, I see you've got a nice ministry uh, stapler there. Nice vintage, <laughs> vintage, <laughs> vintage one there. Um, what what other equipment have you got here? It looks like an interesting shelf you've got over here. Right. Well, just below the uh, the modern carrier receiver is the old original carrier receiver which is what would have been in various shops police stations and the such like and that was turned on and off with that 
also had a little tray underneath with your instructions. Mm-hmm. Um, on the rest of the shelf, we have the original BPI, which is in pounds per square inch, whereas the modern one is in kilopascals. Obviously, okay. That. And was kilopascals the NATO standard, or was was that the reason for the change? Or I can only imagine so. Yes, I mean it seemed silly in our sense because it's extra expense, but it's kilopascals. Um, on the shelf, we have a variety of bits and pieces. If we start from down the bottom, we have what was the original post battery. Unfortunately, insurance won't let us keep acid in it now, so we have to have an external battery. Okay, is this the, is that the one in that wooden crate it is down indeed. there? Okay. Yes, it is. Um, next to that is a black box, which is our homemade training fallout maroon. That sounds very interesting. Homemade training fallout maroon. Dave is now pulling this uh, black box out as he's piqued my uh, interest. So is that what it what it prob- what it would have looked like loaded? Um, no, because all we've done is we've put a buzzer on it and three lights just to simulate. Explosion one, explosion two, explosion three. Oh, okay. I got it. I got it. Okay. That was just for our own training purposes, because obviously you don't get to play with a fallout maroon every day. And it's easier because we had annual post competitions. Yeah. It was easier to actually practice with something than just simulate a non-event. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's an impressive piece of uh, DIY here with a couple of what looks like car indicator. Absolutely. Car indicator, like what car is that from, do you know? I don't, but the the chap that built it, Roger Pedley, uh, he could probably tell you exactly. (laughs) Looks like a Morris or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Thank you for showing me that. The next shelf up, we have uh, a box with some of the original rations, the tinned rations. Wow. So these are vintage, I mean, original, so uh, Dave is showing me a rather rusty tin labelled curried chicken. Well, it is a bit rusty (laughs) around the side, or is that just dirt? I don't know. No, it's slightly rusty. Yeah, curried Um, chicken. And when when were these provided to the post, Dave? Um, Technically, they weren't. Uh, That's fruit salad. No, that is rusty, that one. Yes. Um... (laughs) These were what would have been supplied to the posts on their transition to war when we were actually manned up. We had to go down to group headquarters and collect various pieces of equipment and food rations would have been one of them. And this would have been the typical rations back in the the 80s. Um, As we got nearer to the the stand-down point, they were actually looking at the um, army rations so just dehydrated packs, which you could rehydrate. Mm-hmm. Um, we never got to those. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, 
As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So when we raided group headquarters, we managed to salvage some uh, tins. Fantastic. Fantastic. Have you ever been tempted to open one? There are several tins missing out of that box. They have been opened, they have been consumed, and they were palatable. Wow. How recently after you'd acquired them were they consumed? Uh, about four or five years. So oh, okay. 95, 96. Okay, nobody's dared do it since then. No, we're all still alive. Well, <laughs> correction, those of us that ate are still alive. <laughs> The, uh, the other two items on the shelf, um, the small red can is the um, small petrol can for the generator and uh, getting a little worse for wear, unfortunately. And yes, I, I that has uh, suffered from the, the moisture post. there. Se- September 1990 X11 post. Yep. Great. Literally in its vintage state. Yeah. Some of the stuff here you've acquired from other posts that have shut down in the area or or just other posts? Very, very few bits and pieces. Most of the bits and pieces that we have, uh, fortunately, were acquired from group headquarters when we were stood down. Um, Roger, who I mentioned before, had a very, very good liaison with the, uh, the staff down there. And knowing that all of it, or the majority of it, was going to be going into a big skip, we went down and we managed to purloin whatever we could. Well, I'm very grateful you have because it's it is bringing it to uh, to life more than a a photo would. Yep. It's something you wouldn't normally find anywhere other than on a already installed post. That is the mount for the GZI, the Ground Zero indicator basically the pinhole camera that's a spare never ever been used i would have struggled to identify what that was to be honest Um, we have a a spare mechanical time switch for the lighting because a lot of the posts unfortunately in the early days forgot to turn the posts lighting off when they left so when they come back the battery was flat (laughs) so at some point they changed the switches to electromechanical, sorry, mechanical timers. Yeah. So it was on a two-hour timer. When you came in the post, you had to wind it up. And two hours later, you went into darkness. Right. Unless somebody and decided. And had to fumble around and find the switch again. Exactly. <laughs> and to that, we actually made a little flashing beacon, which we put on top of the switch so that you could always find it. <laughs> so and electronics does come in handy. Oh, Yes. That TV and engineering skills. That's the bit. I bet you were quite popular on that basis. Yes. <laughs> um, so the Fallout Trainer Mark IV, I'm intrigued with. What's this one? Yeah. yeah. Well, basically, that was used to simulate levels of fallout on the post equipment. And there are various versions of that. Um Unfortunately, I can't show you them at the moment because uh, we don't keep them on post. So this would plug into your equipment and effectively emulate fallout or, or readings of fallout on the equipment in the post? That is correct, yes. 
Um, a similar one was later developed um, electronically. There was a mechanical one which basically used a polycarbonate trace and was a clockwork device. And at the start of the exercise, you turned it on. You didn't know what the trace was because it was supplied by group headquarters. Mm. And you went through the exercise accordingly. Right. If you got fallout, you got fallout. If you didn't, you didn't. If you got a massive fallout, yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. So the next shelf up, we have a whole variety of different um, portable dosimeter chargers. Now, portable dosimeter was worn by every observer on the post at Manning Up. And because they're an electrostatic device, they needed charging periodically. And, and what, was their per- what was the purpose of the dosimeter? Was it to measure radiation? It was to measure personal radiation dose, yes. Okay. Uh, which was recorded daily in the log by number one, whoever that was at the time. Um, most of them are of this basic type, which uses a mirror at the back to project light of that hole. Mm-hmm. which is where you would plug the dosimeter in. You would actually charge the dosimeter by cranking yeah. a charge and then use that to add and subtract charge to the dosimeter. Right. So it's basically to zero it. And when, and when you say set the charge, you're not you're charging zeroing. it like a battery. No, you're zeroing the, the scale. Okay, so so the, the, the dust... The scimitar itself didn't have any electrics nope. in it. No, it was basically an electrostatic device, and all you were doing was resetting the pointer back to zero. Okay. So excuse my technical ineptness, but an electrostatic device, what do you mean by that? Basically, it's like when you rub a comb on a piece of material and you get it near your hair, it makes your hair stand up. That's an electrostatic device. Got it, got it. And by zeroing it, you're removing that static yes. from it. Yeah. But well, you're, the, basically, you're charging it to zero. So you're supplying it with an electrostatic charge to bring it to zero. Radiation will reduce that electrostatic charge, but unfortunately, so does time. So this is why you have to charge it every day. Got it. I think. Don't test me on that later, no, Dave. Because that's a concept I'm struggling with there. <laughs> uh, and then on the top shelf. We have a cutaway version of a portable dose rate meter. This is what number three would go out and about with to check the outside radiation levels if they were going out and away from the post. Okay, so this isn't a Geiger counter? Uh, No. Falsely, a lot of programs, and the last one was actually an endeavour where they actually used one of these... And ironically, it sits there going, ticking yeah. away, and yeah. they never did. Yeah. They were silent. See, I've been watching too many movies. That's why I <laughs> called it a Geiger counter. Yeah. No. So I'm getting the true story here yep. from, from Dave. There was no clicking or ticking. No. Basically, that is the bigger version of a portable dose meter. And that was measured in Röntgen. Röntgen's, yeah. He was the guy that invented the X-ray, wasn't he? That's him. You see, yeah, I know, I know some some of this stuff. I do know. God knows why I know that. I'd be useful in a pub quiz. That that I do know. What what other goodies have you got up there? Eighty box POP. 
printing out paper. <laughs> right. What that is basically is the GZI ground zero indicator yep. has photographic paper put in it. Yep. It has four pinholes in it. It's a basic camera, very, very basic. One placing each cardinal point of the compass and literally a plastic graticule covers the photographic paper. During natural daylight, you even get a sun trace on the paper. But during a bomb burst, you will get a pinpoint on the paper. Mm -hmm. From that, you can then read the bearing height of the burst. And uh, Dave is showing me a um, one of these. What's called a North cassette. That's a North cassette. Yeah. Um, would hold the printing out paper facing the north direction. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it, you actually see that the zero line is there. Yeah. And you would get an elevation going that way, because obviously. So at some point during the normal day, you would end up with a sun trail working its way across. Yeah. On the south cassette normally, because it yeah. travels east to west. Yeah. Um, if there was a bomb burst on the north cassette, and we'll say for argument's sake, is it? I haven't got my glasses with me, but if it was at uh, 15 degrees, should we say, mm -hmm. then it would be along that line. And if it was an elevation of one zero, it would be there. You'd have a nice black spot. Right. And then the size of the spot is relevant because that determines the power of the bomb. Okay. So you'd end up with a black bob okay. with a shadow around it. Yeah. You get the um, umbra and then the penumbra. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you work out the distance from, from here? We don't work uh, out the distance. Okay. Uh, you just tell direction and the blast Yep, we size. give a, we give a bearing, elevation, and size of blast. Right. And various other posts will give the same information, and then group headquarters will triangulate it from there. Right. I mean, it's um, quite simple, but then I guess you want simple, um, yeah. because... Uh, you can't beat basics when you're dealing with basics. Yeah. What else have you got that you'd... Um, right, well, that thing there, rather phallic-looking item. Yes. Um, yeah, I think Dave's given probably the best description of that <laughs> than, than I can. That is actually called the FSM dome cover. Now, that is the fixed survey meter. That is uh, where the radiation monitor goes. Now, the Geiger-Muller tube which is on the top of an extending pole. And Dave is showing me a... It's a telescopic uh, pole. Telescopic pole of some description. Which actually goes up a very long tube to the outside of the post. Okay, and Dave is showing me an aperture in the ceiling uh, that this would be inserted into. Correct. Uh, it would have the Geiger-Muller tube attached to the top of it. It would be extended to its full height, yeah. and then insert it into the tube up to surface level. A cable from, a cable from that yeah. would then be then, um, brought to the fixed survey meter, yeah. which was basically your radiation meter. And that's the one that you sat and watched as soon as you had fallout. Okay, and that would only be inserted in time of a, an alert. You wouldn't have that cable in there all the time. That would be inserted on post manning. 
Right. As soon as you were called to man the post, yeah. everything is set operationally. Yeah. Um, so the the BPI baffle plate would be placed on. Yeah. The GZI would be loaded and installed, and the FSM dome cover and FSM meter would be installed. Right. Okay. And I thought that was a walking stick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the Mark One crowbar. I yep. can see. Definitely ideal for sorting number three out when it's difficult. <laughs> uh, but basically, that just just a small toolbox which houses the BPI bar yep. glass plate. It uh, houses the spanners for attaching the FSM dome cover yep. and the GZI and a small wrench for reduce, uh, removing the cover on the baffle plate pipe. Great. Underneath the, uh, the shelf that houses those is a cupboard, which we have marked as the V&A store. Uh, why why V&A? Valuable and acquirable. Oh, okay. Uh, Got it. Basically, it had silly things in it which you didn't want to go walk about. Yeah. yeah. Um, as daft as it sounds, cups, kettle. Um, tea bags sometimes yes. uh, but basically it was to put your personal kit in when yeah. your boat was manned you could put it in there and lock it away yeah okay um, the extra work top on there is not standard that's our addition that's a customisation that's of, a customisation uh, to give us a bit more working space yeah. the monitoring room table um, is just about standard but again, tends to vary on post to post. Some have a shorter, smaller one. Some have a slightly deeper one. No such thing as standard. We added the uh, angled working area because mm-hmm. it was easier than being bent over the the table all the yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, to which there is a, a slot there, which is where the FSM was sat. It just makes life yeah. easier all in one space. And the ROC as an organisation didn't object to their posts being customised in that way? As long as it was within realms. Yeah. You always run it by your group yeah. officer first. Uh, generally, they wouldn't object as long as it wasn't untoward. Yeah. So if you brought a sofa and an armchair down here, they probably would object to that. Mind you, you'd have trouble fitting it down the shaft anyway. I'm just saying, unless you built it down here, yes, you'd have troubles. But no, n- no uh, luxuries as that. Uh, we weren't even allowed heating of any sort. Uh, no naked flames, no cooking, nothing. So that curried chicken can you showed me, if you did have to crack that open, you'd be eating cold curried chicken. Or if we were under no fallout conditions, you'd be doing it outside. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The seating arrangement in here, are these the original chairs that came with the post? Right, well, the the stool at the end there is one that was original at some point. The blue chair in the middle was a replacement in the 80s, but the original ones were nearly always the uh, the canvas and wood. Yeah, sort of uh, like a film, an old 1930s film director's chair, exactly. I, I would describe it. The blue chair that Dave was describing is one of those things you get in a... School. secondary school or or something particularly uncomfortable and the um the stool actually is reasonably comfortable from what yeah. i mean it's got a back on it and uh is it hinged god that's luxury dave how did that happen we don't know we don't know but it was as you say it was quite comfortable because 
most chairs the back is fixed yeah but with this you could actually move and it moved with you yeah so that was yeah. very very good wow and you've got some uh documents here what's this one here the royal observer court training camp at uh raf Broadie in pembrokeshire in 1972 yep well every year there was a an raf um camp uh moved up and down the country to different places uh you had an annual uh, allocation of observers you had to apply if you were lucky you got to go uh you had a week of intensive training on various topics the they were wide mm. everything from the actual core activities to training the trainers so to speak so courses for the post um instructor yeah. number two and it was it was a very very enlightening experience i went on several um a lot of people would should we say jolly about but uh the serious people took it seriously and came away with a, a lot of knowledge mm. so your sector control was shrewsbury was it it was indeed and yes. where, where was it in shrewsbury hollywell street uh, it's now a dentist, if I remember, a vet, sorry, not a dentist, a veterinary's uh, practice. So, but, it, so it wasn't an underground bunker of any kind? It was semi. Uh, it was half underground, it was hardened, um, and when we were closed down, fortunately the new owners separated an area and they've got a small ROC display as well. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll have to go down and have a look at that. Is it publicly accessible or? Um, I believe it may well be, yes. Uh, number 16, Hollywell Street. Okay, I will go I will go and check that out next time I'm going past uh, Shrewsbury. Now, I'm presuming this very fine Royal Observer Corps crest is another rescue from group headquarters. It most certainly is. It's uh, uh, very fine. It's the Royal Observer Corps crest which has this a uh, fine Elizabethan chap yeah. um, holding a, a burning um, torch in one hand and underneath is the Royal Observer Corps motto, which is forewarned is forearmed. Correct. And uh, as you say, it was rescued from group headquarters. I'm definitely taking a photo of that. I'm, <laughs> I'm admiring that. That's, that, 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 that's great. So uh, um, got a a uh, civil defence handbook number 10 advising the householder on protection against nuclear attack so i'm presuming this was a a predecessor to the protect and or the infamous protect and survive pamphlet of the 1980s i think correct yes it's just basically a hardback version which gives you um well we'll say the same or similar information that protect and survive gave I mean, a lot of people tended to poo-poo the protect and survive. But if you think about it, the, the only real crucial thing for the general public that have got nothing at all is basic advice. Mm. And that's what it gave. Yeah. It told you to find the lowest point in the house, the furthest point from doors and windows, cover it with as much as you can, i.e. use a table, Yeah. cover it with doors, anything you like, because... The three biggest things for uh, protection is distance, shielding, and protection. Mm -hmm. And if you can do as much of that as you can, 
you've got the best options. Of Did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. Surviving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this book is... Um, it's about the size of what I'd call a ladybird book, um, one of the kids' ladybird books. It looks a bit similar to that, but obviously with uh, slightly more alarming information <laughs> than your average ladybird book. And what, what are these things with uh, that look like speakers down here? Right, well, those are the predecessors to the uh, British Telecom Teletalk. Oh, okay. So this is the communication device for you to speak back to group headquarters. That's correct, yes. The, the left-hand one, the grey one, that's the original issue item along with its battery still in its polythene bag absolutely very impressive yep again rescued from group headquarters uh, but that was your original teletalk that was your communications obviously volume up and down on yeah. off and press to talk that was our homemade training version okay because again Sometimes when we were training in the wintertime, we didn't always come up to the post. Um, we could take that with us and we can train. Was that constructed messages. by you? No, again, that was done by Roger. Roger okay. did a lot of the, uh, the construction. The training, the training equipment. Yep. He, uh, he was very, very adept at things like that. So when you went to, you, you, you talk about your, your raid on group headquarters at um, Standout. Was it basically stacked full of this stuff? Um, there was a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff was sort of passing through, shall we say. Mm -hmm. A lot of the equipment was um, collected by group officers at Stand Down. A lot of equipment was taken to various meeting points prior to Stand Down. So some had already gone into and through and out of group headquarters. Mm -hmm. And basically we rescued what we could. Yeah. Is is there anything that you left behind which you wish that you had brought out that was maybe too large? Uh, yes, we would have liked to have got hold of one of the uh, air filtration units because uh, what they were looking at at one time on the end of the post wall where we have our air vent, they were looking at a mechanical air vent system right. which bolted onto the wall yeah. and was a hand crank system for forced ventilation. Okay. We would have loved to have got hold of one yeah. of those, but we never did. Right. Um, but again, could have been practical, may not have been. It needed to be cranked for 20 minutes every hour. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that sounds like hard work. Yeah, it would keep somebody awake. Yeah, yeah. The the ventilation is basically this hatch, is it? The, this here. Correct. You've got um, two hatches, uh, well, two ventilation shafts at the top as it ends of the post. Yeah. Um, under normal conditions, if we were under fallout conditions, then the post would be closed, which means all the ventilation slots are shut. Yeah. So that one would be closed. There's one at the top of the shaft, which would be closed. There's one in the downstairs store, stroke, right. loo, yeah. which would be closed. Yeah. And you would open them for an hour or so every several hours yeah. just to change the air. Yeah. And obviously, under fallout conditions, you keep it to limited. Yeah. But obviously, you've got to ventilate because otherwise you get carbon dioxide buildup. Yeah. No, absolutely. This one. Right. That one is a form of crib 
which basically gives you what you need to do on manning up, stand to, at attack warning red. Yeah. So it is a crib sheet. So on manning up, you'd have to make sure that the carrier receiver was on yeah. the WB1400. Yeah. You'd check your FSM, GZI, RSM dosimeters. Make sure you've got petrol in the can. You've got your spade and siren outside. Yeah. Your maroon was ready. Check your time. Check your food, water, stocks and fuel. Load your spare cassettes for the GZI. Yeah. You check your maps and whatever else was needed and set up your shifts and crew duties. Yeah. And then you go on to the conditions that stand to attack warning red and so on. That's quite chilling actually reading that. Because it's sort of, go, it's it's going through the routine of if there was an attack, what you'd actually have to do. and Absolutely. Yeah, indeed it is. And basically that is all you would do. And after the approach of fallout, you're basically locked down anyway. Mm. Um, the one you were waiting for was attack message white, which was the all clear. Did you ever think that was going to come? To be honest, you would never know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Good answer. Right, we are now uh, outside uh, the post, um, out of the uh, the gloom. But my eyes did get used to the darkness. You were right. You were right, Dave, about that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even though you're only working with a six watt light bulb normally, by the time you've been in there for five or ten minutes, it's like daylight. Yeah. And so the the post is a three-person post. What was your role in the post? Well, I started out, as everybody does, as a basic lowly observer. Uh, I worked my way up to being leading observer, which was post instructor at one point. And then, uh, for my sins, ended up being chief observer. So I got control of the post. So you were the uh, the big cheese. You were the you were the guy that sent the uh, number three up to uh, change the photographic plates. I could be yes, but as it happens, if you were in the post on uh, on an actual uh, stand to event, then you would set up your own shift system and you would alternate the uh, the roles between the three of you so that you didn't all end up doing the same thing. Oh, that's very. Very uh, egalitarian, I think I'd, I'd, I'd call that. Okay, so you meet your friend and he says, how would you like to join the ROC? And you say yes. What was your first impression when you got up here and saw the post? Well, I was quite surprised, really, because uh, although Roger had told me it was an underground post, I had visions of it being uh, accessed differently. Uh, I had visions of a slightly more grandiose container but uh, it does what it does it's not overly large it's not mm, obsessively small it's big enough for the three of you what was the longest you were in the bunker for uh, basically we've done a, a weekend from a friday night through to a sunday night when we have uh, we used to have three or four Extended um, training exercises, group-wide. Um, other events would just be a one-day or a one-night event, but three or four times a year you could end up with a whole weekend job. Right, and that, that would have been one of the UK WMO exercises? It certainly was, yeah. Yep. 
And what did the exercises consist of? I mean, what what were they? What was the normal routine they 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 went through? Well, in most cases, you go through a uh, an arrival at the post at a designated time. If they were operating a call out procedure, then you would literally go through a call out system whereby you would work your way down the chain of members until you got enough to man the post. Once you'd man the post, then you literally set the post up as if you were going to transition to war and then just literally follow the whole weekend or night as a real event, obviously under exercise practice conditions. So would you get a simulated attack warning red coming through the communications and, and to that extent, or was it more of a paper exercise? It was a paper exercise. Um, the equipment that we had would give you all the necessary details, whether it be a first fallout or a, uh, an explosion, toxin herd. Um, there was never any uh, messages over the carrier receiver. Did you you knew when these exercises were going to occur, so they didn't do sort of like drills to see how quickly they could turn you out? No, not as such. Um, if you had a um, annual post test then that could be slightly different you could end up uh, being called out on that but in most cases no you knew when they were coming okay did you have any trouble from cnd or the peace movement up here not on this particular post no but unfortunately uh, one of the members that used to be on our post and ended up over at uh, silverdale they had quite a lot of uh, cnd incidents shall we say and various posts up and down the country at different points have had everything from petrol to nasty substances to super glue put in the locks uh, cement put over the top of the hatch all manner of things if they could do it they've done it right right what do you think you you would do if you'd actually had to do it for real if it was the real thing what what would you have done on the face of it, you would hope you'd do what you were going to do, and that is man the post and do your job. Unfortunately, till that happened, you wouldn't really know. There were one or two that were on the post at the time, which I suspected may not have turned up. Others, Roger in particular, would definitely have been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an absolute stalwart. Um, it would be questionable. Hopefully most people would actually turn up. Um, it's not something you go into lightly. You are appraised of the situation when you are enrolled that this is what will happen. What you'd do at the time, don't know. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thought that you're going to leave loved ones behind and, and that sort of thing must have crossed your mind. Oh, it does, Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure what other posts did, but uh, fortunately we had quite a good regime whereby we'd arranged that whatever crew was on, the other post members would make sure the other families and post members were looked after and kept in touch with whatever was needed to be kept in touch with. The ones that were on duty when, we'll use the phrase, the bomb goes up, mm. um everybody else would then make sure that their families were looked after. Yeah, yeah, no, understood. What would you say was the best thing about being in the Royal Observer Corps? 
Oh, um, it's a bit of camaraderie. Um, it's another thing to look forward to. It's a experience. And then when you get your annual training camps, you get to meet other, should we say, like-minded personnel from up and down the country because they were literally from all over the country. Mm. And from all walks of life, I presume, or were they professional people or it was a real cross-section I take it? Oh, absolutely it was a cross-section from literally people that were unemployed to businessmen it really was absolutely across the board. What would you say was the worst thing about being in the Royal Observer Corps? Coming up to this post on a winter's night with horizontal snow <laughs> <laughs> Yeah we, we are blessed a bit today it's uh, it's uh, it's breezy but it's dry and uh, we can see some blue sky but yeah I can imagine coming up here in the dark in horizontal snow would not be uh, the the best of scenarios mm-hmm. I was talking to uh, Alastair McCann in Northern Ireland who preserves a post at Portadown and he was telling me that the electrical equipment would have been damaged by the electromagnetic pulse and that you probably wouldn't have been able to communicate with group headquarters in the event of a bomb going off which would have made the post pretty pointless really what's your your view on that well yes um, that as time progressed probably would have been a potential issue with the EMP um, in the earlier days of course the teletalk was battery operated and in most cases I mean not all posts but the majority of posts were actually fed with underground cables our post is right. and most of the posts I've encountered have been underground fed right. so hopefully they would be semi-protected in that sense but each particular post is in a cluster of four or five posts which are in direct communications with each other via the same landline, admittedly. Mm. Uh, but it is a private landline. It's not using the BT open network, or what was post office network then. Yeah. And one of the posts within a cluster would be a master post which would have a radio and the radio was only ever used at a designated time, uh, so was in protection position in the post. So hopefully, again, that would be kept out of the way. As regards the, I use the word loosely, lunatics that would be prepared to expend a nuclear weapon on another party, you don't know whether they would, whether they wouldn't or what they expected to happen at the other end. Everybody's hope, I suppose, at the end of the day was it was never going to happen. It got close a couple of times, but who knows? We came out of it. Dave, I really appreciate your time today, uh, taking time out of your day to uh, show me around. It has been absolutely fascinating, and I'm looking forward to... uh, coming back again when you when you have an open day and seeing all the kit in action yeah absolutely you'd be most welcome and uh, our pleasure well that's where we finish our chat with dave there's a ton of extra information in the show notes including videos of the royal observer corps in action 
and local museums you can visit, as well as contact details for Dave if you'd like to visit the Rushton Spencer Post yourself. Our show notes are at coldwarconversations.com. Just click on the episodes and show notes option on the homepage. If you like what you're listening to, do join our vibrant Facebook discussion group where there's loads of Cold War information and further discussions with our guests. Just search Cold War Conversations. And we're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. Lastly, if you like what you are hearing, do leave reviews with your podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the podcast. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.